Amen. Thank you. You guys are awesome. All right. How will you throw that up? This is what we're going to talk about today. I made up a word just for the message. All right. It's called the caricaturization of men. How many knows who that is? Dirk Nowitzki, right? Yeah, see, a caricature throws things out of balance where you don't really know who they are. I remember when I was seven years old, seven or eight years old, uh, my favorite football player growing up was John Elway. Anyone else in here? I had John Elway. Yeah, I know some Colorado people in here. But I had John Elway jerseys, and that's just, I love John Elway. And I liked Dan Marino, but not as much. But I liked, I loved John Elway. And so that's how I wanted to be. And so we went to the, to the uh, where was it, the zoo. And they were doing the caricatures. And at this point in my life, I had teeth like Dirk. I looked like I had buck teeth. I had really big front teeth, and they stuck out really far. And uh, my ears stuck out. I looked crazy. And so what do you think they picked on when they did my caricature? had these huge buck teeth with the John Elway jersey on, and my, my hair, they, I was a towhead, that's what they call them. My hair was white, like it was so blonde, it was white. And so I, it looked like I didn't have eyebrows, I was the ugliest little kid ever, right? And so I still had this caricature of myself from when I was 7 to 10 years old, somewhere in there, and I, I laugh at it because they take the things that you're insecure about, and they just make fun of it. It's like comedy, Right? You take something that you're not supposed to talk about and you just make fun of it so that it takes away the pain from it. And that's what a caricature does. And so I want to talk about that today. So if you want to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel, <clears throat> 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we're going to get into that in a moment. And um, I want to pray before we do. So Father, we thank you because you are the best dad. You are the best father. And you show us how to be good people. Not by just telling us to do it, but making the way for us to do it. So we thank you for that. And I ask today that there will be a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of revelation that we may all know you better, God. I ask that there would be breakthrough in the service. I ask that you would break um, mindsets and, and shackles around the way we think, God. And I, I ask that it would produce good fruit in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. We do something in church... And, and the world does something, we'll get into that in a moment. But we love to take the stories of people in the Bible and highlight all the amazing things that they did. So I want to do that to start off, right? David. How many like, how many like David? How many, you know, you, you associate with David in the Bible? So here's some things about David that most of you know, right? We'll just talk about it. We'll brag on David for a moment. He was one of the greatest songwriters that's ever lived. All, most songs that we sing in church should have David's name somewhere on it because we took it from the Psalms or for something that he wrote as a worship to the Lord. Do you know that most of our expressions uh, to God, like things we say to God to worship Him, we stole from David? Like we couldn't even think of our own. Like you are the, the ancient of days. You are, you are the prince of peace. And you are, we took these things from the Bible and things that David said about the Lord to describe Him. Because David was the greatest at this. He set out uh, in the fields and wrote poetry and, and played his instruments before the Lord when he's all by himself. So he wrote these songs. He was awesome. You think about David, and I always think about, I tell my boys this all the time because I think it's unbelievable that a little boy could kill a lion and a bear with his bare hands. Much less with, an, with, a, with some kind of weapon. He did it with his bare hands. And then whenever the giant, the Philistine, was 
was making fun of their God and, and la- laughing at them and looking for someone to challenge and take him on, everyone else was running away, everyone else was hiding. Yet this little boy who kills the lion and the bear said, well, it'll be no different for me. I've killed the lion and a bear. This giant, I'll do the same thing to him. This is David. How awesome is this guy, right? <laughs> David had 300 mighty men who followed him around everywhere, conquering people. The greatest fighters in the Bible were David and his mighty men. David was probably one of the fiercest warriors ever. And he surrounded himself with people just like him, and they were fierce. They would beat 300 people by themselves. They would get trapped, and it would be two of them, and they would take on a whole army and win. And David was their captain. David was the one speaking into them and, and encouraging them and showing them how to be a man and be a warrior. And that's a, that's a great thing about David, right? How many remember that? Here's something else awesome about David. When he was already anointed king, he wouldn't kill Saul who was trying to kill him. Think about the integrity that David had. So he was a warrior. He was a poet. He was a songwriter. He was all these things that are just awesome, like the perfect man. And then, to top it off, he was a person of integrity. Even though he was already anointed king, and the current king was seeking him out to kill him, he said, I will not touch the Lord's anointed one. Because he was a man of integrity. So David's got a lot of positive checks in the box, right? He's doing really awesome. The Bible says in Psalm 17, verse 8, that David was the apple of God's eye. Now, how many would like to have God talk about you like that? Well, he does, just so you know. But before this was made possible for everyone, David entered into this covenant with God that no one else had entered into. It was different. And God said that he loved him so much that David was the apple of his eye. In Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two, and in Revelation 3, 7, this is, it speaks of the key of David. It speaks of something specifically, an authority set aside that only comes through the house of David. Everyone still good? In Luke 1, verse 30 through 34, when it's speaking of Jesus, the Messiah, sitting on a throne, he said he would sit up on the throne of David. This guy had everything right, it seems, right? So let's go find out some of the things he did wrong. And I want to read this story. This was my Bible study this week with my boys. And I said, you know what, this, we have to talk about this. And I added some things to it for us. Um, so if you want to go to, to 2 Samuel chapter 11, I'm going to read this, all right? Instead of me just telling the story, I'm going to read it so you know it's right here. This is not just a story. This is, this is written in the history of God, right? So 2 Samuel chapter 11. And this first verse is key. It says, In the springtime, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab, which was one of his men, out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So David wasn't where he was supposed to be. But he was the apple of God's eye. He was this champion who defeated the Philistines and rallied the whole army of Israel. He was this man of integrity who would not even touch God's anointed, even though his anointed one Saul was trying to kill him. He would not defend himself. This man made a simple mistake, and he just wasn't where he was supposed to be. When he was supposed to be at war, he was at home. And one evening, David got out from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And he thought 
this woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. Now he is starting down a path of destruction, right? Simply by not being where he was supposed to be. So David finds out about her, and the man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was one of David's men. He was one of the captains. He was one of the, the, the people in charge of the army. He was one of his best warriors, and he was a friend of David. <laughs> so he finds out this is the wife of Uriah. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. That was a quick turn, right? From writing the poetry and being a, 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 the apple of God's eye and all these things, these positive things, and then bam, oh, here he is taking another man's wife when his man's out at war where he's supposed to be. Now, as she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness, and she went back home. Verse 5, the woman conceived, she became pregnant, and she sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And David's like, oh no, what am I going to do? I'm so smart, I'm so wise, I will just cover this up. It's funny because the day before we, I taught my boys about in Adam and, the, the story of Adam and Eve and when they sinned, the, the first thing that they did was they wanted to hide and cover it up and blame someone else. Well, here it is. Sin always does that. It's these same little things. We want to hide from God. We want to cover up our sin or we want to blame someone else. And here's exactly what David did. He's trying to hide this. So David sent word to, to Joab, the captain of his army, send Uriah to me. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. <laughs> it's crazy. He's like trying to make this like just a typical meeting with the guy, right? Knowing he just stole this man's wife and now she's pregnant with his child and he's already plotting how he's going to cover this up. So then David said to Uriah, why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? And that's code for go down to your house and you go sleep with your wife. That's what he was wanting him to do, right? He's wanting to cover this up. They didn't have, uh, you know, Montel Williams or what are all the shows? Were, uh, well, Mari Povich, that's the one I was trying to think of. Mari Povich to get the DNA testing back then. They didn't have that. So he thought, you know what, we can just cover this up. And if he'll just go and wash his feet and stay in his own home, and if he'll stay in his house and sleep with Bathsheba, then when she's pregnant, they'll, he'll think that it's his son and it will be okay, right? The plotting, the plotting, the plotting, right? So Uriah left the palace, and, <clears throat> and a gift from the king was sent to him. Verse 9, But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, and he would not go to his own house. Why? Because Uriah was a man of integrity. He was a man of honor. So David was told, Uriah did not go home. So not only that, he had spies looking out and making sure that this whole plan worked out. Well, it didn't work out. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a long military campaign? Why don't you go home? Why didn't you go home? Are you too good for your home? <laughs> so verse 11, Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lay with my wife? As surely as, the, as you live, I will not do such a thing. So then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So now David's like, all right, I'm on to plan B. He's not going to work this out. Then we're just going to have to get really ugly. 
So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. So David's trying to get him drunk. He's like, if I get him drunk enough, he will go home and he will sleep with his wife because that's what drunk people do. That's what he's thinking, right? But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the servants again, and he did not go home. David's on to plan C now. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Now, here's the way I tell the story. In, in those times and in war, they would sound trumpets, and the trumpets would have different signals to it. Some would mean charge, some would mean flank to the left, some would mean flank to the right, some would be retreat. And they would change those signals like baseball teams change their signs, right? Because you don't want people stealing your signs and knowing what your battle cries are. So they tell everyone else the battle cry um, for retreat is this sound, but they tell Uriah the charge is that sound. So when they blow the sound to retreat, everyone else knows it means to back away from war. Yet Uriah thinks it's the charge, and he runs into the fiercest part of the battle. Now that's an evil plot to, to cover up sin, right? <laughs> so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew, verse 16, he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell, or they died. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite, he died. So Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. And he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Now he's trying to cover it up again. Like David's shocked that they would do that to get people killed. He's so upset that people were put in harm's way. And as, as he's the king and the master of this military force, and they got killed under his watch, and he's going to pretend to be angry. And he may ask you, why did you get so close? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? And who killed Abimelech, son of this guy? Didn't a woman drop a stone on him from the wall and kill him? What a horrible way to go. You're minding your own business, you're fighting in a war, and this huge rock from above just flattens you, right? <laughs> Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asked you this, then say to him, but also, or moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything that Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, the men overpowered us, and they came out against us in the open. But we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died, and one of them was Uriah. It's like a side note to the story. <clears throat> so David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. David's taking the approach like this was the hand of God, or this was fate. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as, as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. And say this to Joab. Now when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, so when Bathsheba, who is pregnant with David's child, hears that her husband is dead, she mourns for him. I bet that was a tough morning. Because the, the king had unique powers you know, through history. 
So she's mourning for a husband who's dead, yet she knows that this king is now going to make her one of his wives. I cannot imagine where she was in this, this turmoil. So when Uriah's wife she heard this, she, she mourned, Bathsheba mourned. And after the time of mourning was over, David brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and she gave birth to a son. But the king, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Crazy story, right? Well, it's not over. We'll finish it real quick. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was the prophet at the time, and his job was to speak to David and to counsel David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and the other was poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, and the poor man had nothing except one little lamb that he bought. And he raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. So it was like the family pet. This was not a lamb that they were going to slaughter. This was the family dog, basically. Their pet. They loved this thing, right? And it grew up, and it shared their food and their drink, drink with them. <clears throat> and, it, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. So now a traveler came to the rich man. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler. Instead, he went and took the one lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the traveler who had come to him. Wow. Pretty cool little story, right? David burned with anger against the man. Verse 5, And he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. David thought, that's a good, that's a good punishment for this guy, right? How many of y'all read along with me or you know the story? Then Nathan said to David, and I believe he pointed at him, you are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I anointed you king of Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have even given you more. Wow, what a relationship he had with God. Verse 9, so why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah with the sword and you took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and I will give them to those who are close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. Tough. You did it in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, get out of my presence. Shut up. Who do you think you are to talk to the king like this? Is that what your Bible says? Mine doesn't say that either, right? (laughs) He said a powerful thing. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan said to him, but your sin is removed from you. Amazing, that fast, that quick. And then he says, you're not going to die, but because you've done this, 
you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. Your son that was, that she's, that was just born will die. And after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. And David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat anything. And on the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him this child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering, and he realized the child was dead. And he said, is the child dead? And they replied, yes, he is dead. David got up from the ground. He had washed himself. He put lotions on. He changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord, and he worshiped. <laughs> he went to the house of the Lord and worshiped. Is everyone still okay? I know it's like story time with Jared today, but... <clears throat> then he went to his own house, and at, at his request, they served him food, and he ate. And his attendants said, why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted, but now the child is dead, and you want to eat? He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, because I thought, who knows? Maybe the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But now the child is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back? I will not go to him, but he will return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went in to her, and he made love, and she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, the, the Lord told Nathan to call Solomon Jedediah. Jedediah. Because the word Jedediah means loved by the Lord. What a crazy story. We start off with all the highs of David's life. And when we talk about David in church, we talk about the highs a lot, but we don't talk about the ugliness. If we do, it's just a quick, oh, and he messed up, but look at how God redeemed him. And what I want to talk, what I want to really drive home is this thought today, that church is, has become a place not for men. Men, I'm talking to you today, but this is for everyone. We have caricaturized what a man is supposed to be in the church, that you're supposed to look like the first part of David I told you about. That if you don't like singing songs in church, and if you don't like clapping your hands... And if you don't like dancing and taking these things and twirling them, then you're not a real man of God. Church is not for men. Am I telling that it's just not made for the way men are wired? We want to conquer something. We want to build something. We don't want to sit in a room and listen to somebody talk for however long they want to talk, right? Then when we come to church, we hear the caricaturization of what a man's supposed to look like. Well, you're supposed to lead the Bible study in your home. And you're supposed to go out and you're supposed to make a living. And when you get home, you're supposed to pray with your kids. And you're, we name all these things that are all good. We should have those things, right? But over time, it has become a caricature. We've exaggerated what a man is supposed to look like. And we've forgotten that men are real people. Men are rough people. We're rough around the edges. And it's okay. Guys, I want to tell you right now, it is okay for you to be a man. I should have heard a lot of amens from you guys. See, you're trained. Like, even that's weird to us. Guys, it's okay for you to be a man. Ugh, growl, do something. <laughs> Hoorah. Yeah, I like that better. Hoorah. <sighs> so what, what has happened is by caricaturizing men, we've actually castrated men. We've, 
We've highlighted the things that we think you should be. And we've hidden the things that we don't think you should be because we frown upon those things. It was the warrior, the conqueror in David that led him into sin. He saw something that was beautiful to him. And as a warrior and as a conqueror, he saw beautiful woman. I must conquer beautiful woman. I'm telling the truth, right? What we do is we tell you men, you can't have urges. You can't have passions. You can't be a man. We've caricaturized what a man's supposed to look like. And by doing so, we have cut off the life force of man. Now, those passions that God has given us as men were not meant for us to take them and use them to sin. They're meant to shift and to conquer different things than what we realize. But what we have done is we've done a disservice to men by saying you're supposed to look just like the David who wrote poetry. And so now we've got a generation of boys and young men that don't even know what a man looks like. We have more gel product, no offense, in our hair than our wives and women do. And I'm all for looking handsome and all that kind of stuff. You can't tell by looking at me most of the time. But I'm all, let's just be, let's be a, man, a man, right? And we have become this dainty man. Because the world is trying to say manhood is ugly. Manhood is scary. Manhood is not attractive. So what have we done? We have removed the heart of the champion that's in a man. And we've said you need to be domesticated. You need to be more like a wife. You need to vacuum more. No offense. You need to, and I do those things. I share those things. But I'm, I'm painting a broad picture here. I'm making generalizations. And what we have done is we have taken away the things that will cause the fathers to rise up and lead their kids. Lead their families. Lead their businesses. You guys okay? It's a messaging problem. We have tamed you guys. We've been tamed. Do you know that? Let me tell you this. Did you know that Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, has not been tamed? Jesus was not this just sweet, girly man walking around on the earth. He was confrontational, he was passionate. He even got angry and drove money changers out of his house, his father's house. He made the whip. He didn't go buy one. He even made the whip. He made furniture with his dad growing up. He was a real man. He knew what life was about. And he imparted that into the men that followed him. And so Jesus isn't this tame, this guy that floats around. He's not Gandhi. Jesus is not Gandhi. Jesus was not Buddhist. Jesus was a real man. He was a fierce warrior. And I want to tell you guys, I'm sorry if you feel like you've been caricaturized on what you're supposed to look like. And I want to say that I'm sorry if in doing that we have cut off and castrated who you're really supposed to be. We need you men to be men. We need you young guys to know what it means to be a man and stand up. That doesn't mean you have to be burly and, and, and crude and... Because here's the other thing. The world has caricaturized men. The church has done it and made us really dainty. And the world has done it and made us animals. I, I typed in for a, a Happy Father's Day graphic. And do you know that some of them, they think it's really cute to put women in bikinis to say Happy Father's Day? 
because that's the world's caricaturization of men. They can't control their sexual appetite. All they want to do is this, and all they want to do is watch sports and drink beer and sit around, you know, the couch, couch potatoes. It's this caricature. It's not what a man is. So in both realms, in the church and in the secular society, man has been caricaturized, and we don't even know who we are. We need to get back to the Word and see what real men were about. Men were flawed in the Bible. David was flawed. He was amazing, but he was flawed. And I feel like it's those flaws that made him authentic. I don't feel like we should add flaws to become authentic. But I think that we should realize, you know what? We have amazing things about us, guys, ladies. We have amazing things about us, but we have flaws. And those flaws make us real. And those flaws make us humble. Those flaws cause us to be able to associate with other people and feel other people's pain. And know what other people are going through. Men, it's okay to be men. You guys okay? See, here's the danger when we caricaturize men. Number one, if we do it the way the church has done it, and we edit out all of the bad and just show what's really good, it's called self-righteousness. And if we do it the way the world's done it, and we edit out all the good... It brings condemnation and shame. And men in both realms are living in self-righteousness where we think we have to do and perform and act and, and do certain things to be right, to be godly. And in the world, they think they have to drink more beer, sleep with more women, put more notches on their bedpost, drive a bigger truck, have a nice bow, have a bigger house than their neighbor, compete with everyone and conquer everyone around them. Those are both evil perceptions of what men are. So what do we need to learn from David? He was a good man. He was one of the best men that ever lived. He was a flawed man. He did some of the most detestable things that anyone in the Bible did. Moses did too. Moses killed somebody. They killed somebody and they still led Israel out of bondage and still wrote so many songs and poetries and the, the God's going to send Jesus back to sit on the throne of David, a murderer, someone who stole someone else's wife. You guys okay? God is not interested in you being perfect and performing perfectly. This is what he's interested in right here. In Acts 13... Verse 16 through 23, you can read this, but it says that David was a man after God's own heart. How many want to be a man after God's own heart? How many want to be a lady after God's own heart? (coughs) Flaws and all, I'm after God. Mistakes and all, I'm pursuing God. Even when I'm doing really well, I'm pursuing God. Even when I'm doing my worst and I'm falling and stumbling and I've made mistakes, I still turn to the Lord and run after Him. We're God chasers, right? Amen. Now here's the best part of all this, and we're going to close with this. Psalm 51. So after Nathan points his finger at David, says, you're that man. You are the one who did this evil thing. 
David fell on his face, tears his clothes and repents before God. And then he writes Psalm 51 as a repentance song to the Lord. Let's read it. As, uh, Psalm 51 verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. When we're asking for God's grace, it's really a good idea to not ask him for grace based upon our goodness. It's really good the way David says, be gracious to me, God, according to your loving kindness. Because I'm not good at all. According to the greatness of your compassion, wash away my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. You know what David's saying there? When you say that the sword will not leave my home and when you say that my child will be struck down and die, David's saying, I'm okay with that, God, because you're just. Wow. I accept your discipline, Lord. That's a really intense discipline, right? But he said, I accept it from you, God, because you're just. Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop that I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have crushed and broken rejoice. How awesome is this, man? Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. And then the part that all of us probably know have heard. Create in me a clean and a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way. And sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from my blood guilt, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. And here's the part that I, I want to close with. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But your favor, by your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole offerings. What is David saying? God, if there was anything I could do to please you right now of offering sacrifices and killing the most, most awesome bull or ram, I would offer it to you. But I know what you want right now. You want me to be broken for what I've done. You want me to be repentant in my heart. You, you like that, and so that's what I'm going to offer you. You've got both sides of David. And I would, I would dare say a lot of us have both sides in us, right? We've got the good and the flawed. Here's the deal. The Lord does not judge us based on our flaws. He judges us based on our connection to Him. He can help. He can deal with the flaws. He can deal with the rough edges. It doesn't threaten him. He loved us when we were at our ugliest. So when our heart is after him and we're men and women after God's heart, 
how much more does he pull us close? How much more does he open his heart to us? Flaws and all. See, if he thought men could be perfect, he never would have sent Jesus. But he sent Jesus so that even in our flaws, we could still be sons and daughters. It doesn't give excuse for behavior that is classified as a flaw. I think that's a very nice way to, to speak of murder, as a flaw. <laughs> the nicest way. But those things don't bother him as long as we pursue him. As long as we say, God, forgive me for this. So let's close it out. David loved the Lord. How did he break the caricaturization? He, he loved the Lord. He accepted the discipline that came from God. He was a man of submission. He said, God, I submit to your discipline. It's just. You're a just God. He allowed godly sorrow to bring repentance to his heart. And after he repented, he didn't stay there and cry and not eat. He got up. He dusted himself off. He went and took a shower, a bath. He put the lotions on. He cleansed himself. And he got on with his life. So I don't know where you are today. I don't know if you feel like you're doing really well right now or you feel really flawed. It doesn't matter. The Lord wants all of us, whether we're doing well or whether we're flawed, to be people after His heart. They say, God, even the good that I can bring to you is not what you want. I could even say it that way. Let's just say on our best day, we get graded on our best day. We prayed that morning. We read the Bible. We gave to someone at the street corner that was in need. We helped someone with a flat tire. I mean, we were just a hero that day, right? We did all the right things. Even if we came before God with all of that and said, God, here's what I bring to you as an offering. He would say, that's not the offering I want. The offering I want from you is a broken and a humble and a contrite spirit. So whether we're on our worst day or our best day, it does not matter. He wants us to be humble people who see him as God and recognize our dependence upon him. You know, in, in, in 1962, Madeline Marie O'Hare, under the influence of an evil spirit, and a political climate by herself with an organization of people with money took prayer out of schools. Now, you've, you've heard this, but does anyone remember the, the full prayer? I just remember part of it. But it, it, says, it says, God, we recognize our dependence upon you. This is what they prayed every day. God, we recognize our dependence upon you. And we pray for your blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. That was a broken and a contrite nation. They said, God, we recognize our need for you. That's what it looks like. I, I want to ask you, how close do you feel to your need of God? Like, how familiar are you? When's the last time you really felt, man, I really need the Lord? I mean, we're, I, I'm talking about beyond the platitudes, beyond the, oh, that's just what we say. I mean, where my heart really says, you know what? I may be doing good or bad. It doesn't matter. I can't do anything without the Lord. I am dependent upon Him. I mean, really. That's what the Lord wants from us. That's what a man looks like. Guys, that's what a man looks like. Whether you're conquering the world and you have a Fortune 500 company or you've stolen your friend's wife and had her killed and now she's pregnant. <laughs> Both ends of the spectrum. The Lord wants us to come to Him broken and contrite. I need you, God. I'm desperate for you. I can't do this without you.
Would you just close your eyes? I want to pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to break this caricaturization, to break the mold that we've said men and people of God have to fit into. I ask that you would help us to be freed today, God. I ask that you take us from being domesticated back to being wild. I heard Chris Valentin say this one time. He says, basically, we take men, we bring them into the church, and we domesticate them. And they weren't made. And then we send them out and say, you're supposed to go into a, a wild ward, world and conquer the world. Yet we've domesticated them. We've made them like a circus animal who does tricks. Instead of this raw lion. <coughs> so God, I ask today that you would set us free. Why don't you stand and just talk to the Lord, yeah? Yes, God. When David was anointed for his destiny to be king, what did Samuel the prophet say? Don't consider his height or his appearance. Man does not look at the, God does not look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart. I want you to pray for someone next to you, right? <laughs> We release every man in here to be a man. Come on, the way God designed you. I'm pr- come on, pray for every man in here. We release every man, young and old, God, to be the lions, the champions, the warriors, the, like David's mighty men. We release that and stir that up inside of them today, God. I ask that we would take back our identity that we've lost through the, the caricaturization of the church and of the world. God, I ask that you restore our identity and who we're supposed to be. I ask that you break off the lies that we've believed on both sides, God. And I ask that we would allow you to define who we are. I ask that you would allow, to, allow us to show, show us who we're supposed to be, God. We break partnership with the lies. We break partnership with the comfort, Lord, that comes from, from habits of society. We break those things right now, God. 
Amen. Are you ready? You all ready? I mean, for real, to throw off all that stuff? Really? A couple of you? Are you ready? The world needs you, man. Now more than ever. You are the key to God's plan for the end times. The spirit of Elijah, the spirit of fatherhood, turning the hearts of fathers to the children. You are the key. Men, you're the key. Why don't you look at another man and say, I'm the key. I'm the key. I'm the key. Thank you, Lord. Well, we're going to open the altars. You want to, maybe you're far from the Lord and you want to return. That turning of your heart starts it. That's it. It's turning to the Lord. So if you want to come to the front for that, you need prayer for healing. Again, turn your heart to the Lord. You need a, a miracle. You've had a rough week and you want someone to stand and pray with you. Someone's going to meet you here at the front. I say happy Father's Day to all you guys. I really hope that that. You feel unleashed. I really hope that. All right? So we're opening it up. We love you guys. We bless you. Have a great rest of the day.